Hey, welcome to Thursday Night School. And, you know, I got to admit, I've been finding myself angrier than usual lately. Not to say I've been out of control angry, but I've been contending with my anger a little bit more lately. And you can see where that's just the currency right now. Anger is always a currency, one of the most powerful and attractive forms of currency. But uh, right now, it's the currency. That currency is, uh, people feel that it's, it's, it's inflated. It's an inflated form of currency right now. I'm not going to say that, it, that it's actually worth that much. It's not actually worth any more than any other emotion. I think they're all equal. But you can see where, just like in the economy, certain emotions become inflated in value. And anger is definitely, I don't think anybody would disagree with me. If somebody disagrees with me about the inflated value of currency in June 2020, they're probably angry. <laughs> they're probably going to say that to me with some anger behind their voice. But, you know, so much of my own spiritual practice over the years, and I think this is what brings a lot of people into a spiritual practice of some kind, whatever it is, I think that this transcends boundaries when it comes to spiritual definitions and individual practices. But it's learning how to get a better grip on your emotions. And for me, I've really realized, really realized over the last few years, maybe more recently than that, maybe the last few months, that I did used to be an angry person. I didn't think of myself as angry because I didn't have a, a temper in the sense that I didn't explode into anger super easily. It took me quite a bit to actually explode. But I, as I was telling my friend Cameron a couple of weeks ago, I just I listed off all these stories of myself from my 20s and up until, you know, maybe 31. And like as I was telling him all these stories of times where I just got really angry publicly. And there weren't that many. It was like five stories or something like that. But just I was I was listening to myself tell him about these incidents where nothing horrible happened. But I was just thinking, oh, yeah, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe I was an angry person. Maybe. And I think I was. And I think I am. Because it's not something you can get rid of. And that's why these spiritual practices are important is because, you know, Buddhism in particular, you know, people think of that either outsiders or people who come from this you know, sort of follow your bliss approach, which I might be distorting a little bit. I might be painting that with the wrong brush, but still people have this tendency to think, oh, you know, you you get into Buddhism or Zen. You know, think about the way Zen is used casually, the informal, you know, and what's more informal than Zen itself? Zen practice, <laughs> you know, but still people have this casual sort of informal idea of Zen is and, and they'll see somebody who's in a state of peace and think, oh, very Zen. He's very, he's looking very Zen. Oh, when my cat is sitting in the window with the sunlight on his face, he looks very Zen. And that's Zen too, sure. But there's also, you know, you're not getting rid of that thing that's in there. And that person who looks, that cat 
who looks like it's in total peace, might actually be contending with these very real currencies. Again, these are all currencies, and they're there, and we can't get rid of them entirely, nor should we want to. Because if you get rid of your anger entirely, if you somehow are able to do that, I don't know how you would do that. I don't know what emotional surgery you'd have to have done to yourself to remove that and what else would be removed. That's dangerous, guys. Once they start inventing emotional surgery, don't don't have that procedure. I, I'm just telling you right now, that's a bad idea. I think if you were to, if, if emotional surgery were possible and you were able to remove parts of you you don't like, like you would with plastic surgery, the inside of you would look like those hacked up Hollywood broads. I guess it's not just broads. You can look at anybody who's had it done. Wayne Newton. You know, but your inside would look like that. And people would notice because people can see what's on the inside. They not, might not know what they're looking at, but they can see some of that because it comes out. In the same way, you know, I, I recognized, oh yeah, you know, sometimes my anger did just come out. And even though it was very rare to the point where I don't even think I could count incidents like that on two hands, because, you know, a, a part of my darkness, and I'm, I'm against, you know, I'm going to avoid, and I think I've done a good job at it, you know, to pat myself on the back, but I think I've done a good job at avoiding, you know, proper diagnoses on this show. When I talk about mental health, it's not that I don't take depression or anxiety or schizophrenia for that matter seriously, but those are relatively new terms. And they're going to be they're going to expand or be outdated. They're going to change. Our idea of mental health is going to change dramatically over the next 50, 100 years. Cuz you just think about those Swiss psychologists you know, those, those those profound thinkers who were like, oh, we figured out psychology, psychiatry, or, or maybe not figured it out, but, you know, we've come up with these ideas to explain why people act a certain way. We've recognized these patterns, and those patterns we can refer to as different forms of diagnosis. And so in 100 years, that's, you know, our idea of, of diagnoses is going to be dramatically different. So you shouldn't get too attached to terms like those. You shouldn't get too attached to terms like depression, you know, uh, bipolarity, if it's even referred to that way. You shouldn't get too attached to those. Not that they're not helpful. Not that they aren't helpful for the world in which we live in. In the same way that thinking of those things as demons, you know, hundreds of years ago was helpful to some degree then, but it also wasn't. I mean, people wouldn't have thought of these things as these spiritual afflictions and these being possessed by a demon if there wasn't something helpful about that, because you were recognizing that something was in somebody. And you weren't just saying, oh, that person is all bad. It was, it was a way of detaching the person from their behavior and saying that there is something that is causing this that isn't just the soul of that person being inherently corrupt or bad. And so in that way, even something like demonic possession and both the good that goes along with that of recognizing that, hey, there's something causing this and maybe we can try to remove that from the person. You know, in that same way, though, it's 
we we know why saying somebody is possessed by a demon is potentially bad, but I think it's the same thing now, where we have these terms today that are helpful to us to some degree, but we can also see where they're a form of... We condemn people in many ways. You know, someone can be condemned. I mean, if you tell somebody they're depressed, you plant a seed in their brain. And that seed might be helpful because now they have ways of approaching this thing. Now they understand that, oh, this is a thing. It's not my fault, and I can work I, I can work around this. I can work within this and, and try to do the things that are recommended to people who also feel this way. But it can also be something that people carry with them. They're like, oh, I'm depressed, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be depressed forever. And they kind of get attached to that idea. You can see where it becomes an identity. You see that a lot with, I don't know, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, be mean to anybody here. I'm not trying to explode into anger surrounding this. But you can see where, in particular, young women, you know, in their 20s and 30s today, are very attached to this idea of being depressed and anxious. And those are two qualities that, while they may not make life easy, and they may not make relationships easy. You know, there's a reason why people don't come out and say, hey, I'm, uh, I'm bipolar. Sometimes they do. And there's a reason why they don't come out and say, hey, I'm borderline. Borderline especially, because that will repel people. That one will really repel people. But you see where, like, depression and anxiety, they're like the light beer of mental affliction. And not, not that they're not serious, not that they can't be serious, but they're things that you can kind of broadcast and nobody's going to condemn you completely. You're only really condemning yourself if you become attached to those and broadcast them. And I think it's good that people talk about these things, but I think they should also understand that those are just our current way of understanding these things, and we will have other ways of understanding them too. And that's a very helpful thought. A very helpful thought is to understand that, oh, this is just an interpretation based on our current knowledge and understanding, and this too will be outdated or so heavily revised that our current approach will seem antiquated. It'll be, you know, uh, you know, it'll, it'll become almost archaic when we read about the way that we used to handle these, these issues, especially when it comes to medication and all that. But I'm not an expert, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm not an expert. But, you know, part of a spiritual practice, though, is understanding that certain emotions, let's say they're not so malignant that they turn into a serious, you know, what we would, we would call today a mental illness. Let's say that it's not a mental illness, but you just feel, you know, consumed by certain emotions. You feel like you can't work through certain emotions. You're prone to excessive grief, excessive anger. For me, you know, to, to get back to why I brought up the whole mental health thing and how it's going to change and how it has changed, you know, I try to avoid talking about mental health and, for that matter, my own experiences, which ha have never been diagnosed. As my friend Miles said years ago, he was like, I haven't figured out your diagnosis. <laughs> I haven't figured out your diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I would say the same to him, but... uh and, you know, I don't think there is one. You know, I really don't. And so that's why I would describe my 
situation through life when I was younger as darkness. What, what better way to put it? I don't want to say, yeah, there were episodes of depression. There were episodes of this. I would say that I was generally an anxious person. I was generally caught up in what was going to happen and what had already happened. I wasn't present, which is one of the most common signs of anxiety is if you're thinking about what's to come and you're thinking about what once was. And there's a reason why Buddhism in particular focuses on bringing you to the present moment. You know, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why becoming present is the antidote for some of these things. Not to say that it's a cure-all, but I think there is something helpful at the very least. And if it's helpful, whatever, it doesn't matter what you call it. An antidote, a tip. Um, but yeah, so, so just long story short, it's like I try to avoid calling things by their current... I don't need to reference the DSM-5 or whatever version it is now. I don't need to reference these things. I would just call it darkness. And I would say my darkness was more subdued, and it came out in the form of cynicism, a general dislike, negative opinions for things. Very rarely was there explosive anger, but I also recognize where that cynicism, that dislike, that general aversion to so many things that could have been good for me, that would have been good for me, so much of that was coming from an angry place, and I would even call it hateful, except now hateful is this brand name that means something very specific, and it's the scarlet letter. You put that H on your breast, and then you're, you're done for. When hate is just another part of the emotional spectrum. As I've said before, it's a, it's a more subdued, long-term, cold version of anger. Not that it can't get heated up, but I think that it's, it's kind of a cold, sustained anger is the way that I understand hatred. And to try to say that only certain groups of people feel that way or only certain types of people express hatred is, is just one of the silliest things we have going right now. The idea that only the Southern Poverty Law Center or the ACLU can deem something hateful or not is absurd. And I know hate when I see it. I know misanthropy when I see it. I recently made a joke where I was like, you know, Jeff Foxworthy's thing was, you might be a redneck if. Well, mine is, you might be a misanthrope if. And the best example is driving in the car. If you find yourself not using a turn signal, not parking between the lines in a parking lot, if you find yourself, you know, with a lead foot aggressively tailgating someone, it doesn't matter what you tell people on your Facebook account. It doesn't matter whether you uh, scream Black Lives Matter at the top of your lungs. If you're doing that kind of shit on the road, you're being hateful. You are being very hateful if you tailgate somebody. And I would say, you know, the inverse is true as well. Like, if you're in the far left lane on the freeway going 40 miles an hour, you're, you might not have, you know, it might not be this explosive form of hate, but at the very least, you have some form of... It's a level of disregard for your surroundings. You know, it's... if And it... And it Maybe you're old and you're just losing your senses 
because that's off that you know that's commonly the thing is the old person who's driving very slowly so it's not that they're being hateful by driving way under the speed limit but there's a lack of conscientiousness that goes along with hatred and the thing about hatred too is it it causes you to not see yourself directly and that's difficult to do even when you're in any mental condition but you know hate very much it's the finger pointing outward and the reality is that finger is reflected right back at you and it is coming from a, a place of self-hatred and uh but yeah it's it's one of those things where it's like you might be a misanthrope if you habitually drive drunk you habitually don't use your turn signal you tailgate people you litter doesn't matter what you tell your friends you believe in. doesn't matter what you do. And you might really believe in it. But that contradiction, that to me is a sign that, oh, there's a lot of hate here. Because I don't think that you would do those things if you didn't have some kind of disgust. And it doesn't matter what word you use. Like, I wish I could find another word for hate, but I don't really want to either. Because I think I want people to understand that just because you are against the capital H A the capital H hatred that is the scarlet letter of our modern society that seems to be only associated with, oh, you can only be hateful if you, you know, you're a neo-Nazi. You know, I don't think I want, I, I don't want to avoid the word hatred because I want people to understand that that is so universal and that is so even essential to the human experience, you know, because hatred does have a use. It is a tool, just like all these other things, anger is a tool, grief is a tool, happiness, happiness is a tool, and so I don't think we should completely avoid the word hatred, so I don't really want to replace it with something, but I do want people to understand that you can call it by other names too, whether it's disgust, resentment, at the very least it bleeds into those and the lines blur even if they're not the same exact idea. And so recognizing in myself, you know, that, oh yeah, you know, I was prone to anger, I was prone to darkness in general of different kinds, and I still have that. You know, it's not like I, once again, we, I haven't done some sort of emotional or spiritual surgery where I've removed this, and some people trick themselves into that when they get into a certain philosophy. And you see it a lot with pop philosophies, with these sort of pop spiritual new age philosophies, which maybe I shouldn't comment on because I haven't delved maybe as deeply into them as others, but there's this idea of, oh, I can't have any negativity. Can't have any negativity around me. You know, it's that idea, and it's like, well, good luck with that, first of all. Second of all, um, that itself is a negative statement. <laughs> that itself is a negative statement. I can't have any negativity around me. Your hand is up, and it doesn't, you know, if you were speaking gibberish, your tone and your gesture say it all. You're making a negative statement. And with that in mind, you have to accept that, okay, no matter what, I'm going to have these impulses to negate. Think about it as a verb. Don't think about it as the noun of negativity, capital N negativity. Think of it as... What is it? You think of think of these things as verbs. I think that's a helpful way of understanding them. Hatred too. Think of hating something, because people will say, "I hate that." Oh, I hate that show. 
God, I hate him. I hate him. You know, people will say that, but they will say that, I, oh, I'm not a hateful person, though. I have these extreme dislikes that I verbalize as hatred, but uh, I, uh, I wouldn't call myself a, hatred per- a hateful person. It's like, well, if, if, you're, if you're participating in, the, in actions or you're describing things in such a way that you're hating them, which basically everybody does, whether they want to or not, well, then you're hating. You're, you're hateful. Not that you're hateful all the time. It doesn't, once again, we don't need to condemn ourselves. I think that's just too common is we condemn each other and we condemn ourselves. We brand ourselves and we brand other people. And we try to say, oh, I do this thing, but, but don't brand me. I'm not a Nazi. You know, it's like we have, we have that approach and we find that certain people are easier to brand and they make themselves easier to brand. Nazis want to be called hateful. They want that in many cases. There's something masochistic about it. You know, as that last episode, I was talking about drawing lines in the sand, and that's what a neo-Nazi does. I mean, someone doesn't become a neo-Nazi because they actually want to gain political influence. Oh yeah, let me adopt the symbols and the philosophy if I and political ideology if I've even thought into it. You know, how many neo-Nazis actually know what national socialism is on a functional political level? And for that matter, how many anti-Nazis know what national socialism, beyond the whole genocide thing, which is important. I mean, I'm not dismissing it. Oh, beyond the genocide thing. No, I'm not dismissing (laughs) that. But uh, what I'm saying is, like, how many people who are either neo-Nazis or they're vehemently punching Nazi in the face. You know, how many of those people and the neo-Nazis, how many of them actually know what the functional, the, the political function is of national socialism, what the political ideals are of it? I mean, I wouldn't be able to break it down here. I have a, a very general idea, but I also, I'm not a neo-Nazi, and I'm not somebody who defines myself in opposition to neo-Nazis, which even saying that, even just saying I don't define myself in opposition to neo-Nazis sounds suspect. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, I'll get into that, actually. I think that, that'll be the next point. And, actually, that was the real reason I wanted to do this episode. Uh, who knew I had other shit to talk about? But, uh, but you know, there's this tendency with these people who define themselves either for or against this thing. How many of them actually know the the actual nuances of that belief system beyond the obvious, which is that it was genocidal. Uh, But to get back to what I was saying is just that, you know, neo-Nazis don't adopt this, you know, because you think about Hitler, and Hitler is the modern Antichrist. He is Satan. As the world has become more secular, the idea of Antichrist and Satan has become popular in subculture and even pop culture to some extent. People throw around Satan very casually. They wear shirts with pentagrams on them. Heavy metal is popular. Even people who aren't into heavy metal get into this like fun Satan idea. All these jokes. You see all these jokes like bumper stickers. You know, Satan made me do it. It's very casual. So Satan just doesn't have the same impact he had. I'm sorry, Satan, but you don't have the same impact you once had. 
And that goes along with our world becoming more secular, with religion having a, a smaller role. Christianity becoming more fringe, really, even though it's still the main religion, you know, in our in the Western world, it has become more fringe in certain ways. At least, at least truly believing in it has become more fringe. And as a result, Satan, too, has, is on the fringes. Satan's on the fringes. And so we still need that, though. We still need a Satan. We still need this absolute extreme bad guy. And Hitler showed up at just the right time. You know, Hitler wasn't late to the party. He showed up at the exact time when society needed a new Antichrist, a new Satan, and he's become that. And people throw Hitler around the same exact way they would throw words like the devil or Satan or Antichrist around. And when we don't like a politician who really has nothing in common with Hitler, the tendency is to compare him to Hitler. People did it for Obama, and they do it for Donald Trump. They did it to George W. Bush. There's a pretty broad spectrum of Hitlers, it turns out. Sunscreen and Hitler, the broad spectrum. But if you look around, you'll see where people use it broadly. It doesn't matter what that politician is. It's become, if you don't like somebody in power, what do you do? You call them Hitler, because that's a way of saying they're the worst absolute thing. They are the king of hell. And uh, I guess before I get into, into that, too, it's like, I've, I've talked about this a lot on the show, but it's been very apparent lately, this idea of secularism, if you want to call it that, let's just say the secular world, secular thinking, how much they mirror religion, how much they mirror these spiritual belief systems. And I, I've talked about it before on here about climate change, how there seems to be this... We inevitably seem to envision the apocalypse in our lifetime and think that we have direct control over either the coming of the apocalypse or our role or, or something. We, we tend to see ourselves as part of the as influencing the coming apocalypse, and we just we tend to think that it will come very soon. You can see this with virtually any spiritual belief system. You can see with Christianity, Revelation, the apocalypse, you know, the Kali Yuga, Ragnarok, it, the list goes on and on. Virtually every organized religion, and even, you know, smaller, just even just smaller, more esoteric religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs end up coming to a similar conclusion that the apocalypse is coming, the end of the world. And often the events leading to that are described similarly too, in terms of moral decay, increasing animosity between people, more conflict, people overindulging in pleasure, you know, uh, no sexual restraint. doesn't matter. Everybody sees it that way. Everybody sees these things emerging in a similar way. And then as our world has kind of become that way, as, as we become so argumentative about everything, as we become so polarized, and I don't know if that's new or... In my lifetime, I've seen it become more that way. That's what I know. 
but we also have come up with this idea of climate change, where we aren't religious and we aren't reading about Revelation or Ragnarok or the Kali Yuga, but we see this impending apocalypse, and you must repent. You must repent, or the climate will become too hot for you to live in, and there will be floods. There will be fires. There will be the exact same apocalyptic scenarios you see described in the Bible. But we don't believe in that. We don't believe in that shit. We don't believe in that shit, but yet we're gonna, we think the world is going to end the exact same way. And if you don't agree with me, well, you're going to hell, basically. So we end up with that, but you can also see where the, the same applies to original sin, where original sin is this, we think of that as a condemnation. When we hear the idea of original sin, we think, oh, well, you know, they say Jesus died for my sins, and that means that uh, I'll, I, I live with this sin that I didn't commit. I wasn't alive for this. You know, people, they get very defensive when the idea of original sin comes up, when original sin is the greatest relief you can ever imagine. Because all original sin means is that you can't attain that Christ-like perfection. You know, and Jesus was essentially perfect, as he's explained in the New Testament. You can't really think of a person being more perfect than that. He's the Son of God, and through his conduct, he did achieve some level of perfection. And he didn't even fear death, which parallels Buddhism, where one of the central ideas of Buddhism is learning how to no longer fear your death, even when you start to fear it. You know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I mean, countless other, you know, Hindu and and Buddhist interpretations of Hindu and Buddhist scripture just basically revolves around learning how to not fear death, how to not fear the end of your world and therefore not fear the end of the world. But with original sin, it's like, you know, just in the the pure Christian sense, we have this idea that that's somehow a scarlet letter on us, that we have the big S on our breast for sin, when it's actually the opposite. It's a relief. You no longer have to worry about attaining perfection. You should still strive to be as near perfect as you can be, but it's like the Buddhist idea of the most distant shore that I like to reference, where it's you might not get to that furthest shore, but you should practice anyway. And I'm reading a, a Buddhist book right now, Mind Beyond Death. Very good, uh, very great book. Uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, I, I believe it is, if I'm saying that right. And you know, they, it's funny how the same concepts are, are in there, where there's this idea of you want to practice, you, you want your meditation practice to actually be a form of training for the moment of death so that your mind knows how to deal with the great emptiness and this shocking luminosity of being a mind without a body. That's one of the reasons you meditate, is to prepare yourself for that potential reality. Whether it happens or not, I don't know. And you might not actually get to the point where you are fully prepared. What I was just reading last night, it says this very idea, where you might your training might never actually get you... You might not actually ever get the confidence in your meditation training 
or even your daily life practice to reach a point where you are prepared for that great emptiness the second that your body dies. But even just training a little bit is going to help you out more. It's almost like the idea if if you go for a run once a week, that's better than not going for a run ever. If you do 10 push-ups a day, yeah, it's not 100. But if you do 10 push-ups a day, that's going to prepare your body better to handle more of a load. It'll get you in better shape. So this principle really applies down the board, including preparation for death. And let's say you die and that's it. Let's, let's go with the secular idea that you die and there's nothing. There's nothing. It was all for nothing. Let's say that happens. Well, you improved yourself throughout your life, and even though you couldn't attain perfection, because none of us can, you at least improved yourself, and you probably felt better. And so just feeling a little bit better throughout your life, that seems like the better option than just continuing to dwell in darkness. But with original sin, we can see where the secular world loves that idea, too. Well, first of all, the secular world rejects original sin often, and I'm painting a broad bu- brush by saying, a broad bush by saying secular world. That means all kinds of things. And what I'm thinking about in particular is the most dogmatic form of atheist scientism, which is kind of, a, I feel like that's a cheap target, but it's, I guess it's, I got to use something. I got to use some point of reference, but you can see where even they, even though they reject original sin and almost take offense to the idea that it's like, you're telling me something happened before I was born that I have to carry with me? That I have to carry that cross? You know, it's like, no, actually, that's not what it means at all. It means there's a great relief in knowing that you can never attain that Christ-like perfection. And in fact, Christ died for that perfection because when we see perfection, we often want to destroy it. In the same way that somebody sees a freshly painted wall of a building and wants to spray paint it. We have this need to destroy perfection when we find it, which is why we destroy celebrities, which is why we send... We, like, we're a part of this, but we kind of are, because we indulge in it. It's it's the reason paparazzi follows celebrities around looking for a bad picture. Because celebrities become these demigods who seem perfect to us, because we only see them, in a, especially pre-social media. Now we see all the dirt of their mind, but we used to only see them when they were glossy, And so what do we do? It's like that South Park episode about Britney Spears where it's like at the end, Britney's all mangled and the paparazzi has destroyed her body and her life. And the paparazzi's like, no, no, you don't understand. We're trying to kill her. That was such a great episode because uh, that's what we try to do to perfection. You know, we try to taint perfection when we find it. It's why people are jealous. It's why people resent some people who they don't even know because they see them and they think, oh, that person's that person's seems perfect, therefore they think they're perfect and think they're better than me, when really that's a person who just probably understood the relief of original sin somehow intuitively and knew that, oh, I can just work hard and improve my life, and I might never become perfect because if you could achieve perfection, we would have a lot of people who never do anything. If being famous or rich or talented or beautiful, if that was perfection, those people would just stop at a certain point. 
The Rolling Stones would never need to record another album after like 1969 or something. I don't, I don't know what year, but uh, you, you know what I mean. Like where it's like a band who records the perfect album, which hey, I could, I could give you a list. There are albums that where I don't think there is anything wrong with them. But the band themselves obviously felt there was still more to do. They were still hungry for something. And if you're still hungry for something, well, that's not perfection. Um, but so, so you can see where, you know, even the things that we think are perfect aren't. But because we think they're perfect, we try to tear them down. We try to kill them. Because that's what happens. When you think something is perfect, you kill it by even just carving your name into it by just uh even just if you if you just take a pen and you stick a dot on a freshly painted white wall you're killing the perfection even though it wasn't perfect but anyway so the secular way of thinking is that oh you know how dare they condemn me with original sin and make me think that I need to repent my whole life they think repenting is torturing yourself when repenting is improving yourself you know you improve yourself when you repent it's not whipping yourself it's doing 10 push-ups it's reading a book that you know enriches your life in some way it's working on something it's putting the work in. It's not just sitting around whipping yourself. And, of course, Christians get it wrong all the time. Of course they do. And they do a great disservice to the value of, of you know, Christian philosophy. But that just tells you everything. That's why I approach, you know, my the stuff that I enjoy about Christianity is, is definitely more Gnostic. And I don't read Gnostic literature or really delve into stuff that calls itself Gnosticism. But I relate to that where it's, you know, what's Gnosticism? It's knowledge. It is, ex what is knowledge? It's experience. I'm very much into experiential spirituality, which leads me to organized religion, but I won't join it. I will just use it as a resource. And that's what it all comes down to, is these are resources, not limitations. And... Uh, but you can see where original sin creeps in. In the same way that climate change replaces Revelation, or Ragnarok, we can see where ideas like racism replace original sin. And what you're seeing a lot of, if you get online right now, what you're seeing a lot of, and I went to the Evergreen State College. You know, what's funny is there are people who are saying, like, I got invited to some group by somebody who was very well-meaning, and I would hate for her to hear this and say... You know, oh God, Eric like resents me, which I don't. Like a beautiful, wonderful person I used to work with, who I consider a friend. She invited me to a like a Facebook group that's about educating white people about racism. And I know she means well. And this this came about in the last like week or two. And I know she means well, but it's like there's an assumption that I haven't done this work. Or if I have done this work, that I haven't done it properly. You know, I, I went to the Evergreen State College. Look it up. Look it up if you want to know what kind of school it is. And I was there for four years, and I studied the humanities. And not just the humanities. I studied particularly the Civil War and the post-Civil War period between, 18, between the 1860s and the 1960s. So that's the, that's the stuff as I would call it. And I wouldn't be able to recite facts. For me, it was, you know, I studied social psychology and sociology. 
And I wouldn't be able to tell you the dates or all the names or every, every little detail, but I was looking for the big thing in all of that. And I'm not going to say I know everything by any means, but, you know, I've certainly done my work. Maybe not as much as I could or somebody thinks I should, but this stuff isn't new to me. And some of these resources people are sharing, while I think they have some value and give you perspective, you know, even if you don't necessarily, you know, at, at the very least, even if you disagree or something with the conclusions, they at least give you perspective on where other people are coming from in all of this. But the idea of joining a Facebook group in June 2020 just to, like, learn how racist I am, you know, I already know how racist I am. You know, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, but that's where that original sin idea comes from, because what I'm seeing from a lot of people on the far left right now, every time I get online, really, is this idea of you'll never not be racist. You'll never not be, even if you're like what I've seen, I've seen this explicitly said, which is that even if you're anti-racist or think yourself, you know, is what I, this is what it said. Even if you think you're non-racist or you're anti-racist, you'll never be non-racist, and you just have to work with that and basically continually repent. And what's funny is, even though I disagree with the intention behind that, I agree with the idea because it relates to the idea of original sin. What that means in a general sense, when someone says to you, you'll never not be racist even if you're anti-racist, what they're telling you is that you carry original sin with you. You'll never be perfect, is what they're saying. You'll Even if you commit yourself to this cause and bettering yourself in the name of justice, you will never be truly just. You will never be truly fair. And why can't we just say that? Because I don't, I, when I say so-called, I, I use the phrase a lot, so-called racism, because the goalposts have been widened on that, the definition of that particular phrase, and not that there isn't systemic racism, but the goalposts have been widened for a very particular reason. And the idea is that you must continually repent in ways that we tell you you must repent. You must repent in ways that aren't necessarily through your own process of personal discovery, which involves listening to other people, but the idea is that you must continually repent in ways that we tell you, and we're going to constantly make you feel bad, too. Because that's a part of it. There's a shame, and that's where you get into this cult-like thinking, and you can see where inevitably people fall into cult-like manners of thinking. And I spent many years studying cults. I, had a, I have a close family member who was admittedly part of a cult, and I may have spoken of him before. And what's very interesting about him is he was part of a Christian cult, and I don't really, for, just out of respect for him, because I have a great deal of respect for this family member, you know, and, and most of his most of the time that he was in this cult was before I was born and when I was very young. And it's not my dad, but it's a close family member. And uh, he he left the cult, and he acknowledged that it was a cult. But what's very fascinating and impressive to me is that he is still a very devout Christian. He is still a very religious man. And I like that he was able to leave this intense Christian cult but retain his spiritual identity. 
because it's very easy to do the opposite. It's very easy to say it was all wrong. It's, it would be very easy to get dismayed and disturbed by this Christian cult that you were a part of and then leave it and say, well, I hate Christianity now. Obviously, Christianity has no use for me. Obviously, Christianity is all bad. It's the same thing you see with alcoholics, where it's like you leave, you, you quit drinking, you join AA, and now you can't ever be around alcohol and you hate alcohol. And honestly, if there was a vote for another prohibition, I know people who are former alcoholics, quote unquote alcoholics, who would probably vote for a secretly vote for another prohibition because they act that way in their life right now whereas you know yeah i was a drunk and i don't it doesn't even make a difference to me whether you say oh you'll always be a drunk whether you drink or not potentially yeah and that potential is the reason why i avoid it along with just having no desire to drink anymore but still my philosophy isn't to like oh i quit i quit the cult of alcoholism so now i have to hate alcohol no, and I respect that about this family member, where he was a member of a very real cult, acknowledged that it was a cult, left, and uh, you know took issue with the cult, but he retained his spiritual identity through that, and that's impressive to me. But, uh, but yeah, with this idea of original sin, where, oh, you'll, you'll never, even no matter how anti-racist you are, you'll never be non-racist. And I would actually agree with that because I think what we call racism, what we what's so-called racism is something ancient and integrated with our very being. I think that it is part of our bodies and it is something that we have to we do have to continually contend with. We'll always have to contend with our tribal natures. I think that's how I would put it. It's not oh, I'll always be racist. Because racism is another one of those words like hatred, racism with a capital R, where people use it to further a very specific agenda. Not to say some of that agenda isn't rooted in goodness or it's not well-meaning and that we shouldn't listen to it ever. You know, that's not what I'm saying at all. But this capital R racism, this capital H hatred, they're very malignant, especially today. And while I agree with the idea that we will always carry with us a certain level of tribalism, especially ethno-tribalism, because no matter how integrated society becomes, it seems like we still manage to gravitate toward certain types of people, at the very least. But rather than having to continually repent, it, you acknowledge that it's there. It's, it's kind of like what I was trying to get at earlier about emotion, where that's, that's like an emotion, that desire to be tribal and to gravitate toward your own and to prefer your own, that is something that you just have to contend with, and you have to challenge it in some ways. But the more you try to destroy it, the more you become that in, in some other way. The more you become angry and violent in another way, the more hateful you become. Because it's what happens when you try to shut out negativity from your life. It's the same exact thing. And it's why one of the teachings of Buddhism is when you're feeling angry, don't try to shut it out. Don't try to repress or suppress your anger. You let it, it's easy come, easy go. You think about how easy your anger comes sometimes. Sometimes you don't even, you can just become angry instantly. But what you don't realize is that your anger can go away instantly if you loosen your grip on it. You don't try to push it away. You don't try to drop it. 
Because if you try to drop it, you know, it's going to land on your feet. It's going to land, your, your anger's going to land on your feet like a medicine ball. A big old heavy medicine ball covered in spikes. You know, it's going to fall down and break your fucking feet. Break your fucking feet. But uh, that's kind of what it's like when you try to just push an emotion away. Like when you try to suppress an emotion. So that's why you just have to feel it and know why you're feeling it. And it's easy come, easy go once you once you learn how that works. You know, I, I use the phrase often, like when you start to feel something like that, you have to chop it down at its roots, but you recognize that the roots are still there. And, you know, I don't know that a Buddhist, because I'm not a Buddhist, even though the teachings impact me, uh, but, you know, I don't know that a Buddhist would like that idea of, like, chopping them at their roots. It seems kind of, you know, who brought the machete here? Buddhism, we don't believe in machetes in Buddhism. Well, I do. I think I think in machete terms a lot, um, but you know I recognize that the roots are there. But you want to just tr- and I, I think Buddhism would agree with this. <laughs> I think I think all of those different schools of Buddhism who often disagree, I think they would all agree at this. But just that the idea it's not about the violent act of ch- of like chopping something, but it's it's about the idea of not letting something completely bloom because that obscures the roots. So you recognize that the roots of these negative emotions will always be there. And that's what people are trying to say when they say you will never be non-racist. They're trying to say the roots of that, the the impulse of that ethno-tribal way of seeing the world, that with us and against us way of seeing the world, that will always be there. But I think it becomes malignant because it becomes this distortion of original sin yet again where it's about whipping yourself. It's about, you know... You might as well be cutting yourself and saying, look, look, I'm repenting. And that seems to be what certain political ideologies want. They want you to torture yourself. And that's what cults do as well. That's why I brought up cults, as we see where there's this cult-like way of thinking. I'm not going to call it a cult, but it is very cult-like, where it's like, okay, here's this, we believe in these very strict views of reality, and anything that challenges that doesn't just make us argue, but it makes us want to stop you and shut you down and condemn you, excommunicate you. And you see where right now people are cutting ties with their family if their family doesn't go along. They're cutting ties with Uncle Bob. If Uncle Bob or, or you know, uh, Great Uncle John, if they don't agree with your 2020, you know, Facebook friends understanding of what racism is, you know, they're saying, cut that person out of your life and label them a heretic. You know, that's what's going on right now. And people are taking a certain pride because that's the thing about anger and conflict is they are so attractive because they get you high. And then when you come down, you feel stupid. It must be like, you think about a guy who like smokes meth and then like, participates in like a some sexual act with somebody that he never would and then he comes down like I, w- I don't know what that feels like but I have to imagine that's that's what it feels like too when you get really high on these political conflicts and condemn somebody and cut them out of your life and you feel really high for a while there must be a point where you come down and you're like I can't believe I did that when I was drunk or high I feel like it's the same thing because these things are intoxicating Um, but the idea, what I'm getting at here is, is just that you can see where it's no matter how orthodox you are, no matter how, no matter how 
orthodox you are in a certain religious system, you know, no matter how much you believe in that, or how secular you are, how much of an atheist you are, how much you pray to the altar of science, it seems like we end up coming to the same conclusions, that the world is going to end in fire and flood, that we are born with things that happen before our existence that we have to carry with us, and what else does that remind you of? What else does original sin and racism, what does that remind you of? Karma. Things happen before you were born that give you a negative disposition, and you have to work through them. That's what karma is as well. So you can see where it doesn't really matter what the belief system is, or even if it's even if a belief system prides itself on alleged non-belief, like the secular world, you can see where they come to sim- they, similar ideas, and we get lost in the fact that we think we're so different. We think we found something different and new and better, and we, we don't use the same words. We have a different lexicon, and yet what are we doing? We're doing the same exact thing, we're using the same exact concepts, and we're angry about it when someone doesn't agree with us. So, if you're a secular-minded person, think about the ways in which your beliefs parallel religions, and not in an effort to dismiss them. Because a very profound idea I heard a little while back was, when you compare two religions and you see how similar they are, two completely different religions, like if you say, if you, if you were to compare Christianity, Christianity to Islam, and I think there are better examples of religions that are more different than those two, but just let's just say we think of those two as complete opposites, where it's Christianity and Islam, and if you were to actually compare them, you would see a lot of parallels to the point where you might raise an eyebrow. But this comment that I saw was, you compare two religions, and that makes you think that they're both bullshit. That's your first tendency. If you see the parallels between two different religions, you're going to think they're bullshit. But then when you look at five or ten religions or more, and you start to see the parallels between those, then you start saying, oh, something is going on. That these different people at different stages in human history came to you know eerily similar conclusions about the nature of the world and the universe and used similar symbols and ways of describing things you know once you start to see that it's like you look at two things and you think oh because these things are similar that means that it's bullshit but then you look at 10 of those things and see the parallels between those and then you start to say oh okay maybe they were all on to the same thing and they just had different interpretations in the same way that, you know, my best friend and I growing up might experience the same thing. And I say the guy had a green shirt. My friend says he has a blue shirt. And we could split hairs about that. But we're describing the same guy in the same situation. You know, it's, it could be the same exact thing with these different religious beliefs. So you have to remember that. And then we go even further and see that even the people who have defined their life in opposition to religion, even they start coming up with the same ideas. Even they create these gods. Even they start, you know, kneeling before the altar of Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, even they find these people that they worship. And you can see that right now, too, with... You can see where the right wing and the left wing (laughs) were having these arguments about Martin Luther King Jr., where they're like, but he said this about protests. But he said this. But this is what happened. 
but this is what happened. And so they're arguing about Martin Luther King Jr. quotes or Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy. And I was looking at that and I'm just like, you guys are fighting over an interpretation of what Jesus said. Because Martin Luther King Jr., in the same way that we've come up with these Hitlers to be our new Satans, and I don't, why Stalin isn't included in that, I guess it's easier to have one. I think that's a. I think this is a very important point because a lot of people have brought this up, and they're like, "Why don't people talk about Stalin in the same way they do Hitler?" Stalin killed a lot of people, more than Hitler allegedly. So why doesn't he get brought up in the same context? And I think it's because we can only really comprehend in the same way that we can only have one president. I think we can only really comprehend one Satan at a time. And the consensus was that Hitler is our Satan. But anyway, so, you know, people are arguing like over these interpretations of Martin Luther King Jr. quotes and philosophies and stuff, whatever best fits what they want. And you see that in religion, where it's the same reason people read the Bible and come to completely different conclusions. The first time I read the Bible, I was shocked at how little there was about these like right-wing conservative talking points that are apparently drawing from the Bible. Like I was surprised how little there is about gay people in the Bible. I was expecting like half the Bible to be filled with, you know, references to homosexuality. And while they're in there, it's it's like a footnote practically. It's a random aside, and even then it's fairly open for interpretation, or the context isn't entirely clear. So you can see where someone can just, you know really split hairs over that. And that's what they're doing with Martin Luther King Jr., because we end up creating these figures in our life who become religious figures. And in the same way that Hitler is Satan, Martin Luther King Jr. has been sort of the this Christ-like figure of modern America, you know, who a lot of different people agreed that he had insight into how to achieve some kind of social harmony. People who would otherwise disagree, and of course now they're disagreeing over whether Martin Luther King Jr. would support riots or this or that. And I would say, why not just leave him out of it and think for yourself? Why do you need to always reference some sort of demigod? But we do. So who am I to argue with it? You know, I guess I can't. But we we seem to always need to find these demigods who have more insight than we have. And we make statues out of them and we interpret them long after they're dead. It's like, why do you need Martin Luther King Jr. to tell you what to do in 2020 or what to think in 2020? Don't you have enough insight and information to come to your own conclusion or at least kind of try to figure things out in 2020? You have all the information you could ever need through the internet, through libraries, you know, through your phone. Why do you need some guy who died and he's, not that he's some guy, you know, I'm not trying to minimize Martin Luther King Jr. here, but just, you know, why do you need to reference somebody who died a long time ago to, to know what to do now? And why do you need to argue with somebody else about it? It's because we, I guess we just need to reference somebody who we see as a higher power than us. It's, it's a strange thing. And in the same way, we do it with things we don't like, where you need a Satan, you need a Hitler. But the question is, can you love Hitler? And a lot of people would say, never. Can you have compassion for Hitler? And this is kind of what I was getting at when I talked about, can you have, not passion, can you have compassion for the coronavirus? 
At the very least, I should ask you, do you hate the coronavirus? Do you hate the coronavirus? And nobody's talking, nobody's even thinking about that anymore. But still, it was something that I asked myself when quarantine broke out. And it was clear that this thing was not only going to affect us physically, but that it was going to affect us mentally and financially and all of the above. When I knew that quarantine and, and the coronavirus was going to affect us, I asked myself, do I hate the coronavirus? And I said, no. I don't know what's going on in that thing. I know that it infects people, and I don't like what it does to people, but I don't know that I have a big enough picture. I don't know that I have a top-down view that's expansive enough to know what the purpose is of coronavirus. I don't have a view of coronavirus island. Coronavirus. You heard of Coney Island? Well, we got coronavirus. <laughs> Violent. <laughs> coronavirus. It's an it's it's an island in Brooklyn. It's instead of amusement parks and a boardwalk, it's all hospitals. Coronavirus. But I asked myself that: Do I hate the coronavirus? And I was just I laughed. I was like, No. Do I hate cancer? You know, a very close family member of mine fought breast cancer. And, you know, I, I would never want to, I don't know that I really have the right to, like, say this one way or another, but it's like, I don't even think I hate cancer. I hate what it does. You know, I don't, I'm so grateful that my family member beat this thing, but I don't even hate cancer. And then you could go further, and I, I know I mentioned this before, but I think it's an important point, and that's, I don't even hate necrotizing fasciitis, even though it killed my mom. And did it really? You know, yeah, yeah, that was the the diagnosis, but it's like she was going to die eventually. My my beautiful, wonderful, sweet mother, it was her, the six-month anniversary last night, yesterday since she died, and I, I didn't even remember that. I think about her every day, all day, obviously. I reference her a lot on this show, as I should. But it wasn't until her friend messaged me last night and, and said, oh, it's been six months exactly today. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then that forced me to kind of go down. It didn't force me, but I was like, should I do something? And, and I, I ended up going through some pictures and really thinking about her even more intensely than I do. And I cried, but crying feels great and pure. It doesn't feel like a sad burden. When I cry about my mom, which doesn't happen as much as I would expect... You know, before she died, I would have thought that I would do nothing but crying the rest of my life. But in the six months since she passed, I find myself crying, you know, relatively little. And when I do, it's just this like cleansing. You know, I was, like I said, I was feeling kind of angry about everything going on in the world and just just kind of trying to sort it out. And like, what should I do about the fact that I, I don't really agree with what this approach is and I don't really agree with the, what they're saying, but I also know the fundamental Val like I agree with the fundamental values that they think they're preaching. You know, it's like that kind of thing. I was just, but I was getting kind of worked up and angry, like kind of everybody. And then I, you know, I was reminded of it was my mom's six month anniversary from her death, which like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I care about death anniversaries. You know, I like to think about life and life anniversaries. Her birthday is a much more important day to me than the day she died. But I just kind of was like, oh, it, just, it gave me a cleansing. You know, and like I said, crying to me, it's not really grief or a sad burden that I have to carry. It's just kind of a cleansing experience. But I think that's important. I think if you can access those kinds of feelings when you're going through a time like this, when we're in a state of chaos in the world and you're getting kind of worked up about it, if something happens like that that's very personally relevant 
and you know gives you a different emotional reaction that's cleansing that really my head just felt so clear afterward but uh what was i getting at um uh, oh yeah well just yeah I, I don't i don't even hate necrotizing fasciitis even though it's it was the diagnosis but once again that's a reason not to get too attached to the diagnosis the diagnosis was necrotizing fasciitis if you were to look at the death certificate it says cause of death necrotizing fasciitis respiratory failure you know whatever else and but i don't even hate necrotizing fasciitis and so if i don't hate necrotizing fasciitis even though it's comically evil sounding i feel like if you were to look at it under a microscope you'd see horns and I could turn necrotizing fasciitis into some sort of biological Satan, and I could spend the rest of my life fighting it. And I think people should be aware of it. It's a freak disease that you, you never would have thought of otherwise unless somebody you know gets it. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to turn that into my Satan. I'm not going to turn coronavi, coronavirus. I'm not going to turn that into my devil. And for that matter, I don't think of Hitler that way either. And people should actually have a certain love for Hitler. And that's a quote that if someone were to take out of context, they would try to ruin my life. But Hitler created such intense contrast that so many more people loved in the wake of Hitler's actions. You know, I talk about how stories need contrast in the same way that a good guy needs a bad guy. Hitler gave us a very real version of hate and I don't think it was that different than the same hate that has led to countless other genocides, countless other wars, countless other, you know, ethno, ethnic-based hatred. I don't think that's even different from cavemen deciding that we're part of one ethno tribe and we have to, like, club you over the head to steal your food or whatever they fought over. Cavemen were fighting over ideas, too, not just meat. <laughs> I was there. I was there. Um, but, uh, you know, Hitler actually, in his wake, created a lot more love for at least a while. Not to say people weren't still killing each other, not to say there's still there were other genocides even in the wake of Hitler. Uh, but still, it's like Hitler, by becoming the Antichrist, he actually created a desire for many people to come together and to love. And in that way, can you hate him? You can hate what he did, but it's a weird thing. And, and so when I think of compassion, you know, reading this Mind Beyond Death book, reading about Buddhism, studying Buddhism so much, and Christianity too. This is something you see in Christianity as well. It's another one of the same conclusions that different religions come to. It's that you got to have compassion for everybody. And when someone reads that, they think, oh, they still want to be selective. When someone reads in a, in a Buddhist scripture... Or they read the New Testament, they read about Jesus, and they think, oh, compassion, loving kindness, loving everyone. Surely they don't mean everyone. Surely they don't mean everybody. They can't mean Hitler. They can't mean necrotizing fasciitis. They can't mean every single person on earth. But yet, what do we see? We see these moments of grace where someone was... Their mother was killed by a serial killer with them in the next room. 
and they testify in court when that serial killer, or they, they, they give a statement, you know, at sentencing for that killer, and sometimes they will say, I forgive you. And I used to see people do that, you know, someone who's always been interested in crime and courtrooms and all of this my entire life. As a kid, I would watch that, and I would see somebody look at their loved one's killer in the face in court and say, I forgive you. And sometimes that would cause the killer themselves to melt and to cry because they don't expect that because the killer can handle hate. The killer embodies that, you know, the, the killer can handle hate from these people who lost a loved one. That's the killer's currency is hatred. But when someone sends them love and compassion and kindness, they don't even know what to do. So they cry or they just they say nothing. And you can do that too. And it's easier said than done. A lot easier said than done. But when you read books, when you're reading some sort of Buddhist text, or you're reading the New Testament, or any number of other belief systems, because everybody comes to this conclusion, and they say, love everybody. Because that's the wholeness. The wholeness is that all of these things have a relationship. In Hitler's wake, there's been a lot more, it it woke some people up and said, hey, you know, maybe we should actually love other people. Maybe we shouldn't have the same prejudices. I don't think we would have had the civil rights movement of the 1960s had it not been for Hitler. Are we going to say, let's thank Hitler for the civil rights movement? You know, you could do that, and I, I think you'd be right in a certain way. But people have a tendency to hear that and think of it as an immediate they, they, they think of that as an immediate relationship they, where it's like, well, he didn't directly cause it. But you can see that and say, you know, when somebody gave us such a striking image of what hatred is and what it can be, what tyranny can be, you know, in its wake, that can create much more love. So in that way, you can sort of love that person who did something awful because what happened afterward, what they created created a much larger larger reservoir to be filled with love and compassion. And I see that right now where people are deciding to hate anybody who disagrees with them, people who have adopted this cult-like way of thinking. They want to hate somebody. When they say you're either for us or against us, silence is betrayal, like I said in the last episode, there's a part of them that is being masochistic and actually wants you to be on the other side. Because they are getting high off of that hatred and anger that they feel toward anybody who disagrees with them because they think they're only championing a moral cause. And that's what everybody does. Hitler was championing a moral cause. Stalin was. Genghis Khan, I don't know about Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan might have just wanted to chop heads off. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I haven't done the work on that. I haven't done the research. I didn't take the Genghis Khan program at Evergreen State College, okay? But you can see where so often, you know, people do have this greater good, and especially when it plays out on a national level. You can't convince an entire country of people to commit genocide. Not that the entire country participated, that's another myth, but you can't convince, you know, an entire army to go along with a genocide if they don't think they're fighting for something, some sort of greater good. And so that's what we see right now with the current political and social divide where certain people think that they are absolutely morally right and that there is no nuance to the situation. And that's scary. That's cult-like. 
and they almost want to excommunicate you because they feel high and justified when they do excommunicate somebody. And you see that in cults, where cults encourage you to sever ties to your family and your friends, anybody who disagrees with the cult at all. And they might not even disagree with the cult. They might just not see things as you see them. When you preach to them, because that's what you inevitably do when you adopt cult-like thinking, is you start preaching to people, and somebody might not even disagree with what you're preaching about, but if they simply don't take it in, or they don't join the cult, that is enough to walk away from them and do it angrily. And people get high off of that, and people are getting high off of that as we speak on both sides. On both sides, all sides. I don't want to say there's two sides, because that's, that's the other thing. That's, that just plays into their entire way of thinking. Their, and here I'm doing it, their way of thinking. Our. It's really our way of thinking, because we have such a strong tendency to do it. Especially the more cult-like our thinking becomes. Yet these people will watch a documentary on Heaven's Gate and be like, I can't believe these people. Like, can you get a load of these people? You get a load of these Heaven's Gate people? And they'll watch that, and then they don't realize that they're playing that same thing out in their own lives, possibly on a larger and more dangerous scale. And they are even more dogmatic about it. And I, I always get back to this, where it goes back to the thing of us all improvising, us all just figuring things out as we go. I always want to clap for people. That part of me that is angry, <laughs> that part of me that is very angry when, like in response to things, I want to just give somebody a golf clap and say, it's so amazing how you were able to figure it all out. Thousands upon thousands of years of human history and contradiction and missteps and just like so much confusion and ups and downs and lefts and rights and wow, it's 2020 and you're one of the people who figured it all out. You're one of the people who, who was right. You're one of the first people in human history who was right. Oh my God. You know, I want to say that to people just to, like, get them in check, because I'm not right. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm like, wiggling around in a, a bag, <laughs> you know? I'm like, I feel like I'm someone who's wiggling around in a potato sack, you know? And you, you I don't even know, I don't even know what my own shape is, you know? Do I even have one? I'm like, it's like somebody captured wind in a in a potato sack, and it's blowing around in there. That's what I feel like. But uh, these other people, it's amazing. It's just amazing. It's amazing that after all these years and so much confusion and terror and contradiction and hypocrisy and cycles, that you're one of the people who was absolutely right forever across time. But I don't express that because it's just that's starting a fight. And that's my own way of saying I'm right. So you got to keep yourself in check, too. A lot of ideas in this episode, but compassion is the one that I want to close with. Because you read about it, and you have a tendency to read about compassion, and it says every scripture, have compassion for everybody. Because that's how you understand the wholeness. That's how you understand that we are all truly connected, is to have compassion for everybody. 
but it it means everybody. It really means everybody. It means have compassion for the neo-Nazis. It means have compassion for the most cutthroat communist secret police under Stalin. It means have compassion for Jesus Christ. Have have compassion for Hitler. Have compassion for yourself. It really means have compassion for everybody, the good, the bad, the in-between. And I do feel like that is much more helpful than the alternative, which is to have selective compassion, which is to decide for you to feel like you are the arbitrator of who deserves your compassion, of which humans, of which creatures deserve your compassion. I feel like it's much healthier to say, there is a, a coexistence that I have to acknowledge, and if I acknowledge that coexistence, no matter how vehemently I disagree with somebody's words or behavior, no matter how much I feel threatened by them, I can actually lessen that threat through compassion. And it's not a quick fix. Because that's what people are looking for. In the same way that people of secular beliefs, and they are beliefs, they're not facts. You know, science is an incredible process that I have nothing but respect for. But it doesn't produce facts. It produces observations. And observations are subjective, too. Even if we try to, you know, find the, great, the greatest amount of objectivity in those observations that we can, they are st- just like psychology, just like how our current diagnoses are going to change. Science is continually changing. So at the end of the day, if you have viewpoints, those aren't facts, they are beliefs. No matter how secular they are, no matter how grounded in material reality you think they are, they are still beliefs. And so remember that your beliefs are just as religious as that person that you're pointing a finger at, whose views you see as anachronistic or archaic, outdated, counterintuitive, dangerous, to use that popular word, you're prone to it as well, especially the more removed you think you are from those other people's beliefs. And in that way, it's not wrong to want to repent, but repenting is improving your individual self so that you can help other people around you too. And that's another belief that you'll find in virtually any religious system as well. There's a heavy focus on improving yourself individually so that you can serve some sort of greater good. So if you harmonize with that greater good, with that wholeness, that's only going to encourage more harmony. Because if you get into some weird place where you want to be dissonant or you embrace your own dissonance, Well, that's not going to help the whole harmonize, because you're part of the whole, and if you're dissonant, well, that that speaks for itself. That's a missing puzzle piece. There's a hole in that puzzle. Don't be a hole in that puzzle. But the, you know, you just can't convince yourself that you really think fundamentally differently from anybody else. And 
you don't see repenting as a form of torturing yourself and torturing others in an attempt to get some kind of quick fix, because that's kind of what people want. You can see right now the people, too, who are flooding memes and comments and they're they've just gone full in they're overloading everybody they think of they think they they can if they over if they overload enough people with what they feel is morally right they think their ticket to heaven is going to come that sooner and even if they don't believe in heaven that's still what they're reaching for so i would say instead do what you're doing but do it compassionately it's not that i'm saying don't fight for what you believe is right It's not that I'm saying your moral cause is bullshit. What I'm saying is that you are trying to apply a quick fix, and you're trying to overload people, and you're doing it through anger and judgment and condemnation. And you're trying to tell them that redemption comes through self-torture and the torturing of others, when the reality is Redemption comes through compassion, because you can't improve yourself if you don't have compassion for yourself. Even if you try to improve yourself without some compassion for yourself, you're going to wear yourself down to the bone very quickly. Because compassion means knowing when to relax and knowing when to rest, as well as knowing when to kick it into gear. That's what compassion teaches you. But compassion also allows you to understand the whole of everybody. It allows you to know how you fit into that whole. It allows you to find your role, or at least communicate to you what your role isn't. It gives you strength. It gives you strength of character. It allows you to not become a weak link that will easily break. So... You can use compassion to your benefit, and compassion, if you want to talk about currency, I was referring to anger as the currency of the now. Well, compassion is a currency that, is, that has a much longer shelf life. It's like gold. <laughs> you know, you figure paper money comes and goes. We print it. We change it because people are counterfeiting it, and we put different leaders on it. We put different watermarks on it. That should tell you how fluid and transient paper money is, that we have to constantly change it and constantly embed secret things inside of it that you can only see when you hold it up to a light. Meanwhile, gold just sits there. And not that people don't try to make fake gold. Not that fool's gold doesn't just show up on the side of the road. But I do feel that compassion, as far as our social currency goes, really is our gold. Pure gold. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains 